Hello listeners, Fahad Ahmed here. We are living in extraordinary times. Converging crises have brought to light immense societal issues affecting so many since the beginning of the year. In times like these, trustworthy, transparent, and ethical leadership is of utmost importance, which is why we are pleased to bring you this week's episode. This episode features a conversation between Bernstein Center Faculty Director Madupe Akinola and former senior advisor to President Barack Obama, Valerie Jarrett, who is now the senior advisor to the Obama Foundation. In this discussion, Ms. Jarrett shares poignant lessons from her extensive career spanning both the public and private sectors, and she speaks about the challenges and opportunities facing leaders in business, politics, and society. But first, we want to tell you about this conversation's origin. Each year, the Sanford C. Bernstein & Company Center for Leadership and Ethics hosts the KPMG Pete Marwick Stanley R. Cleon Forum Speaker Series. The series features leaders who are committed to resolving the major ethical, social, political, and economic challenges of our time. It was established in memory of the late Stanley R. Cleon, the Executive Vice Chairman and Chief Operating Partner of Pete Marwick International, and a longtime executive in residence at CBS. This forum is reflective of Mr. Cleon's ethical leadership style and its goal to encourage greater awareness of the ethical dilemmas faced by today's leaders. So now, please enjoy this conversation between Madupe Akinola and Valerie Jarrett. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Madupe Akinola, and I'm an associate professor at Columbia Business School, and I'm also the director of the Stanford C. Bernstein and Company Center for Leadership and Ethics. And I just want to welcome all of you today to the annual KPMG Pete Marwick Stanley R. Cleon Forum featuring our incredibly special guest, Valerie Jarrett. Ms. Jarrett is the longest serving senior advisor to President Barack Obama. And she oversaw the Office of Public Engagement and Intergovernmental Affairs and chaired the White House Council on Women and Girls. And before joining the White House, she served as the CEO of the Habitat Company in Chicago and also chairman of the board for numerous public and private enterprises, including the Chicago Transit Board and the Chicago Stock Exchange. And as if that isn't enough, she's currently a senior advisor to the Obama Foundation and a senior distinguished fellow at the University of Chicago Law School. Oh, and, and as if that wasn't enough, oh yeah, she added author as another thing she did. This is her book. Finding My Voice, and if you haven't read it, please do. We'll whet your appetite a little bit by probably talking about something she discussed in the book, but this is the Valerie Jarrett. And another way to put it is, this is the woman, the bomb, bad mama jamma, all that in a bag of chips, if we're gonna go colloquial in terms of who we have with us today. So thank you, Valerie, for joining us. You're welcome, Madupe. What an introduction that was. I am delighted to be here with you all. Thank you, thank you. And I feel like we're going to just jump right in. Let's do it. My question for you is, you know, before you experience all those accolades, you are the daughter of Barbara and Jim Bowman. You're somebody's niece. You're somebody's best friend. If we were to ask them who you are, who would they say you are? What three words would they use to describe you? Well, you pick people who love me, so I hope they would be three complimentary words. Um, loyal, responsible, 
and uh, true. It's funny that you mentioned that because I listened to your podcast with uh, former Flotus, and she mentioned that you were one of the most honest and trustworthy people she knows. So that sounds very, very consistent. Well, I get that from Barbara and Jimmy Bowman. Um, yes. I was raised well with a strong sense of purpose and moral compass and sense of responsibility, I think. And so my parents taught me by their life's example. Now, tell me a little bit more about your parents. I know that for the first five years of your life, you were in Iran. You were born there because your father was a doctor and couldn't find opportunities here. Let's go back to back in the day, in the mid-50s, we were still living under Jim Crow in the United States. And my father, who was a well-trained physician and had been in the Army practicing, when he was leaving the Army, he wanted to join a major academic uh, teaching hospital and couldn't find a job comparable to his white counterparts. And so he and my mother started looking for opportunities outside of the United States and back then, uh, for those of you who are not history buffs, the United States had very strong diplomatic ties with Iran. The Shah of Iran was um, a very close partner to the United States in a whole range of issues. And he was interested in improving healthcare in the country and had instructed his team to create hospitals in underserved parts of the country. And so my dad was offered the opportunity to help start a new hospital in Shiraz, Iran, the Namazi Hospital, and chair the Department of Pathology an opportunity that was not available to him in the United States. And so off they went. And the irony of the story, or I guess maybe the moral of the story is, is that we started doing research uh, that caught the attention of folks at the Galton Labs at University College of London. So after five years in Iran, he and my mother got a little homesick and started to think, well, let's start heading back to the United States. And from the Galton Labs, he delivered a paper and it caught the attention of the Dean of the University of Chicago Medical Center. My mom grew up in Chicago. My dad had done his residency in Chicago and he became the first African-American tenured professor in the Division of Biological Sciences at the University of Chicago. And so his message to me growing up was, sometimes the shortest distance to where you really wanna go means you better be flexible and take the scenic route. Now, it sounds like you've had international experiences at a young age. Tell us a little bit more about what that transition was like and how that might have inspired you or shaped your goal of fairness and, and having a just society and, and being able to promote that in your life's work. Well, initially, to be very candid with you, it was hard for me. I'm, I'm, I'm age five. I'm speaking three languages because we lived on a hospital compound in Shiraz with families um, of physicians from all over the world. So I was speaking French and English and Farsi. The one year in Great Britain, I developed a British accent. And then I get plopped down in the neighborhood public school and I was different. And all I wanted to be was just like all the other kids. And so I became really shy. And I think it was as a result of feeling different. And I know a lot of people when they're young feel different and it manifests itself in interesting ways. But as an adult now, what I realized I learned three lessons as a result of that experience. And one is, I honestly think I can walk into a room and find something in common with whoever's in that room. Yeah. And that's come in handy, having had to work with some very strange bedfellows in my life. And I think it comes from having grown up with children from all over and seeing that we're still kids and we, we could find that common ground, even when language was a barrier. Yeah. The other lesson I learned is that living outside of the United States in a country that was underdeveloped, 
gives you a, an appreciation for the United States that many Americans take for granted. Uh, and it's everything from the clean water and the food and we're not worrying about diseases for which there were not cures to our civil liberties and freedom of speech and association and religion. Very few people have had that type of background. If you think statistically, there's really a less than 1% chance that you would have ended up where you are today. <laughs> just based on just your background, your race, your gender, you name it. At what point in your life did you realize that you were gonna be in that 1%? I think, honestly, sitting on that platform inauguration day, back in 2009 with my daughter who was in law school at the time, freezing cold. And I thought, I can't believe we're actually here and that we're about to embark on this extraordinary privilege, this extraordinary journey. And I remember sitting there thinking, I, I just can't believe this is my life. I mean, I'm used to seeing other people sitting up on the platform on inauguration day and then there I was. It took me a while for it to actually sink in. But I will say, and I think all the chapters leading up to that, when you look back, it makes a lot more sense than it did at the time when I was making these life-turning decisions. Right. Well, you know, they say luck favors the prepared. And you talked about how your father was prepared in some ways and also got a little bit lucky. I'm curious to hear more about ways in which you felt you were prepared to take on the roles that you have taken on in your journey? Well, so let's go back. When I finished law school, I really didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. I didn't have any idea why I went to law school, to be very candid with you. My best friend was a couple years older than I, and she said, go to law school, buy you some time, and it seemed like a good idea to me. And my parents, who were both academics, believed in uh, continuing education and going as far as you could. And when I finished law school, I thought, well, let me make a plan, right? Everybody seemed to have had a plan and I made one up, which was to discover my passion in the law, uh, fall in love, get married, have a baby by the time I was 30, thinking about the biological clock ticking away and live happily ever after. And I, in fact, begin my book 10 years into the, that 10 year plan, sitting in my office, having uh, landed a job at a great law firm, married the boy next door, had a baby at 29, and I was completely miserable. And so misery motivated me to make what was, what turned out in retrospect to be a life-changing swerve. Yeah. Uh, and I decided I had to do something. I wasn't meant to be that miserable. And a dear friend of mine said, why don't you consider public service? Mm -hmm. uh, you'll feel like you're a part of something bigger than yourself. And that was not on my 10-year plan. And I told my friend, but no, this is my plan. He said, but your plan is making you miserable. Switch. And I did. And I never looked back. And I think many of the lessons that I learned in local government in Chicago prepared me for going on and running my own company, serving on a range of boards, and ultimately being a senior advisor to the president. And when I went to the White House, a couple of my responsibilities were as you mentioned, uh, the Office of Public Engagement, which was the gateway into the White House for the American people. And I'd done that at the local level. And then the other was overseeing intergovernmental affairs. And I'd worked for mayors. I'd been chairing the board of the Chicago Transit Authority, which is a regional operation. I appreciated the importance of those local elected officials and wanted to be their gateway. And then finally, chairing the White House Council on Women and Girls, having been a single mom who had good paying jobs, health insurance, supportive parents, steady um, childcare, excellent childcare, 
flexibility. Once I left the law firm, I worked enormously long hours in the city, but all of my bosses recognized I was a single mother and gave me support. And I still felt like I was hanging on by my fingertips. And so I used to think, well, what must life be like for those working moms who have none of that, yes. uh, who have no safety net? And that's when I really started on my journey for gender equity. And so chairing the White House Council on Women and Girls was like a lived experience from my perspective. So I think the key is to be open, to be flexible, to recognize that opportunity never knocks at opportune moments. And that when you look back on your life, the chapters tend to add up um, if you're willing to take some calculated risks and change paths and find your own passion and listen to the quiet voice inside of you, which I think I ignored initially. So for all of you out there, whether you're MBAs or law school students or working and you're feeling unhappy and wondering what your path should be and have that 10-year plan, what I've heard is maybe think about ripping that up, think about your networks and relationships and tap into those to figure out what's best for you. Because if you do that, look, I mean, you have the potential to do great things. I do wanna transition a little bit and talk about your experience at the White House. Oh, I so much, so, so many places to begin, but I think I will start with what were the major obstacles that you and the Obama administration had to overcome to really improve societal and business issues when you were in the White House? Keep in mind back in 2009, when President Obama took office, our major banks were on the verge of collapse. The automobile industry was in bankruptcy. We had two wars going on. We had um, a very robust affirmative agenda that President Obama had committed to fulfill when he was in the campaign. So we had the headwinds of, of really a global economic crisis, as well as trying to push forward ways of shoring up our economy, stabilizing it, creating jobs, and also um, committing to do robust big things such as the Affordable Care Act. And I think the headwinds that surprised me in a profoundly disappointing way that have only gotten worse over the last, uh, over the last four years is that there is a toxicity in the air in Washington yeah. that I just wasn't prepared for. And I say that coming from Chicago, which is known for having rough and tumble politics. That's what Chicago is um, one of our reputations. But I, I always felt that in the end, people might disagree about how to get where they wanted to go, but they did want to improve the lives of the residents of Chicago. And I think what I discovered in Washington is, is that those, so many of those politicians were too far removed from their constituents. Mm -hmm. They needed to go back home and listen the way I had learned to do. And they were prepared to basically like just hold their breath and turn purple for political short-term victories as opposed to making big decisions for the long-term for our country. And whether it was investing in infrastructure, which traditionally had been bipartisan or supporting the Affordable Care Act that was modeled after what Governor Romney had done in Massachusetts, a Republican governor, it was not that controversial, um, or everything we really tried to do was responded to through a political lens. And that was really the headwind that I had not fully appreciated. And I think um, it did a disservice to our country, but notwithstanding all of that, you know, we cut the unemployment rate in half, we created millions of jobs, there 20 million people have healthcare coverage, not to mention 
hundreds of a hundred million Americans over who have pre-existing conditions who don't have to worry anymore, brought home 150,000 troops. I mean, there's so much about what we did keeping Iran from developing nuclear weapons, a major climate deal. Uh, and it pains me to say all of that because the, new, the current administration is obviously trying to unravel every bit of that progress, uh, which is why elections have consequences. And I think one of the other disappointments I had was kind of the apathy that we did see around the country. In 2016, 100 million eligible voters didn't participate. I believe every election is important, whether it's mayor or local prosecutor, the governors, the checks and balances in Congress. Uh, and that level of disengagement, I think, from the American people also made it harder to put pressure on Congress to do the right thing. I mean, you just mentioned the need to vote, and yes, we are in an election year. What do you think we need to do to make sure to get those numbers up again? Well, it's interesting you'd ask that question because one of the organizations that I chair the board of now is called When We All Vote. And it was launched by former First Lady Michelle Obama a couple of years ago. And that 100 million number that didn't vote really stuck in her craw. And she's talked about this quite publicly. And so she thought, well, what can we do to change the culture in our country around voting? So the people appreciate that our most basic responsibility as citizens is to, is to ensure that we are uh, supporting the foundation of our democracy, which is voting. That's embedded. We the people, the beginning of our constitution is there for a reason. It's about us. It's not about them. And if we don't provide that check and balance, how do we hold our elected officials accountable? And so we created a 501c3 not-for-profit, nonpartisan by design organization to try to close both the age and the race gap. Disproportionately, young people don't vote, but they have the most to lose. And we know that there are many examples around the country where people of color, their vote has been suppressed. And so we really went at it from that perspective to try to ensure that we get as many people registered. The final point I'd make on this is that in this really painful year where we've been dealing with both the COVID-19 uh, pandemic as well as the racial injustices that have bubbled up uh, and really hit America as a whole. For the first time, all 50 states have had people demonstrating of all backgrounds, of all races, of all ages, uh, mostly peaceful, which I think is a really important part of the, the democratic process. But it's also laid bare how important government is to yeah. both our lives and our livelihoods. And you see the difference in a state like New York that was ground zero to the pandemic that has really now gotten it down to a manageable level compared to other states where we have, you know, it's going out of proportion and it's the elected officials and their ability to use science as a foundation and not turn a pandemic into a political issue. And I think it's a good example of how there are no ends to which people will, will not go to make things about politics. And this should be about our livelihood. It shouldn't be a red state or a blue state issue. This is truly an American problem. Uh, racial injustice, it's an American problem. I'm hoping that the last four years, and particularly this painful year, has been kind of a wake-up call. And the midterm elections were a good sign. There are more women now who were elected to Congress than ever before in our history. And no offense to the guys, but I do think that we make better decisions when half the population is represented in Congress. And so I am encouraged. I'm feeling hopeful. And, and more optimistic than perhaps, if you just look at what's in the press, you might feel. 
And it comes from having seen the energy that's coming from the ground. I was just on a call last night with thousands of high school students who are out there registering people to vote. And I started with a group maybe three months ago and there were 30 of them. And it's just mushroomed across the country. So there are glimmers of hope. I want you to be an educated voter too. I want you to think about, well, what are the issues you care about most? And, and what are your core values? And who are the people who you think who are actually in the contest? Not talk about people who aren't actually in the races and, and I'm talking about at all levels of government. Who are the people who you think both reflect best reflect your values and your agenda and your priorities, and then get out there and vote for them and encourage your friends to vote and participate. I think in a sense, we've seen just in the course of the summer, cities that have changed their laws because of the demonstrations, whether it's the no-knock warrant or the chokehold or taking a look at their use of force. Uh, there is a, there has been a consequence to that, that action that peaceful demonstrations have moved politicians. And so that's part of the civics lesson too, is that our voices matter. And yeah. so make sure that you aren't abdicating your responsibility because one of the other lessons I learned in Washington is that there is, um, first of all, an entrenched stranglehold over the status quo. People who have power have no intention of giving it up unless they yeah. have to. Special interest groups that use their muscle through money in politics they're getting their agenda. So don't you wanna get your agenda through? And you don't have to spend a lot of money. You just have to fill out a ballot and vote. And our elections are always close in this country, the federal elections. And so every vote does matter. And so please vote. I do wanna talk for a moment about the systemic racism that we're seeing in the world that exists, that per, is pervasive in the country. And in your book, one of my favorite moments was when you, mentioned that President Obama used to say that every safe has a combination, you just have to figure it out. What do you think the combination is for addressing this systemic racism in the country and in organizations that we're seeing? Well, I think I would go back to my early days at City Hall. We have to listen. I think, I, and, and that is happening. I have had so many people over the course of this last summer business leaders, elected officials say to me, I had no idea it was this bad. There was just something I think about the confluence of the pandemic, people being isolated, the toxicity in our political discourse, the polarization of our society, coupled with watching George Floyd die in the most callous, brutal way for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And and then Breonna Taylor shot in her own home. I mean, people were really jarred by that. And I think you might say, well, when Trayvon Martin was killed or when Eric Gardner, also somebody who in New York who had a policeman press on his neck till he was killed or Michael Brown or Laquan McDonald or Tamir Rice, unfortunately the list just goes on and on. What was so unique about this moment? And that's why I think in the context of our current climate, it just boiled over. I had somebody say to me recently, what is this talk that happens in the black families? And I said, well, we teach our sons and now our daughters that they have to act a certain way when they're with police in ways that their white friends don't. And he said, how do I not know about this? Hmm. And I realized because as a black community, we don't talk about the talk, right? 
Why? It's mm-hmm. embarrassing. Why should we have to say mm-hmm. we have to raise our children differently? Yep. And so I think part of how we make progress is through empathy, where people walk in our shoes and try to imagine what it's like for a black mom or dad to worry literally every time your child leaves the house, whether or not the people who swear to protect them and serve will do that in a just and fair way. It's just, it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And I think that what's happening in the police force is a microcosm of society. Yes. This is not just the police department. This is a societal problem. And I think the good news is, is that I think businesses are thinking, what are we doing? You know, what's our role in this? Are we creating, we might say diversity is a strength and it gives us a competitive advantage, but are we building an inclusive culture? Mm-hmm. And I have heard a lot of business leaders challenging themselves on that. Why is it when we look around our boardroom or our senior management, we only see people who look like us? Yeah. Because you hired them and you hired the people you know and who shared your life experiences. But the mounting evidence is showing that you will make a better decision if you're competing in a marketplace that's diverse, if you are informed by the marketplace, by your business colleagues who look like the marketplace. And so we don't have to do this because it's the nice thing to do. We can do it because of the business imperative. And And I have found more and more business leaders saying, we are ill equipped to deal with this, so we better start listening. And there is a humbleness that um, I think is healthy and an empathy that is growing. I interviewed uh, Dolores Vorta, who was one of the leaders of the Farm Workers Union, created it with Cesar Chavez years ago. And I interviewed her a few days ago and she reminded me that the strike uh, lasted five years. (laughs) That's how long we went without having grapes in my household, five years. Um, When you think about Rosa Parks, the Montgomery bus boycott, lasted over a year through a very hot summer in the South where people carpooled or they walked to work. You have to be prepared to sacrifice. And I I worry that in this time where everything happens so quickly, thanks to technology, that our expectations are that culture changes rapidly. And it doesn't, it takes forever. I mean, if you think about like, we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of a woman's right to vote white women's right to vote in this country, but the initial petition for universal suffrage was signed back in 1866, 53 years until they actually had the right to vote introduced into Congress. And for black women, it wasn't until 1965. And so the arc has always bent slowly towards justice with effort, but slowly. And so I want people to recognize that it has to be sustained. The difference between a moment and a movement is effort and time and energy. And I'm hopeful that this time will be different. Now, there's so many people who are watching right now who want to lead and make an impact like you have. What would your top three pieces of advice be? Just start. Start local. Start with something that, that you care passionately about. It can be volunteering at a local high school tutoring kids, or it could be organizing a block club, or it could be serving uh, on an outside board or joining government. Uh, it, it doesn't really matter where you start, just start. And, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier, Madhupi, which is build relationships with people. First of all, it's the elixir of life. And so it's worth the investment 
be willing to be vulnerable and listen to your own voice and be open with people and honest, I think, and frank. And in so doing, you'll discover what your true north is. Mm. And it might vary from chapter to chapter of your life to some degree. My true north has been service, not politics, but service. Yes. Right now, my service is through volunteer work. Mm -hmm. I'm not working in, in government, uh, nor will I again, I don't <laughs> think. But I, I love the work that I am doing. And so I would say, obviously, be open, be flexible, recognize that opportunity comes to not just those who work hard, but to those who are decent and that other people want to invest in and associate themselves with. I think so often we're so busy doing the job that we forget about the people. And whatever job you're in, you're going to need people and goodwill. I think my next book might be titled Goodwill. I don't know if there's a more important lesson I've learned in life than goodwill. It matters. You have spent so much time in the public sector. What do you think that the private sector can really learn from the public sector? And what does the public sector do so well that we really need to leverage that more? Until recently, the private sector tended to see their mission. Let's just talk, let's say, about publicly held companies. The mission was return to shareholder. Quarterly returns, really important. There, there haven't been the incentives I think we need to think long-termism. And I mentioned that politicians often don't do that either. But what, they, what politicians are supposed to do, what leaders in the public sector are supposed to do, is to take a look at more than just profit. That's part of the wake-up call that we've seen this summer among business leaders is recognizing that if, if there is civil unrest, that's not good for business. Yeah. And how do they go about seeing their responsibility more broadly than shareholder return? So a few years ago, Larry Fink from uh, BlackRock wrote a letter to his shareholders where he said, we have to care about the environment and diversity and a whole range of issues and that I'm going to invest in companies that get that. Well, that was a real wake-up call. And then last summer, the Business Roundtable, the 200 largest companies in the United States, wrote a statement of purpose that said, we have to look beyond shareholder return to what's in the best interest of our workers, our suppliers, our customers, society. Mm -hmm. So then we were seeing an evolution in the business community to what is supposed to be the mission of the public sector. Yeah. And I think that's healthy. I just read a survey that was um, conducted by Elman about two weeks ago, and it showed that people expect the business community to step up and have a voice in the racial justice movement. And the good thing about the younger generation is that you tend to buy according to your values. You, you, work, you want to work for companies that reflect your values. You want to buy goods and services from companies that reflect your values. And I think that's putting pressure on the business community as well. Yeah. They're taking great pride in, uh, in their participation because they think it's good for business. Yeah. So morphing beyond shareholder return, recognizing your role as corporate citizens, stepping up to the responsibility, and speaking where there's often a void or where it's controversial. I remember... Uh, Indiana passed a law that uh, allowed discrimination against the LGBTQ community. And business leaders uh, like Mark Benioff from Salesforce said, well, I'm not going to do business in Indiana then. And he got some blowback, but you know what? On balance, it was the right thing to do. And I think we're, I'm encouraging business leaders to use their voices and use their power to 
participate more actively in our democracy, something that has traditionally been left to the public sector. How do you keep going in situations where you don't have control over the outcome and feel powerless? Resilience, and we didn't talk about that today. And I'm surprised at myself because I actually think resilience is one of the most important skills that we all have to have. And you know, if, if it doesn't work one way, try it another way. If it doesn't work that way, try it a different way. And you're right, oftentimes it is not, circumstances are beyond our control, but you have to just work at what you can control and influence. And sometimes it's more than you think. Yeah. You just have to keep at it. And I think that when I look back over what we accomplished in the White House, what I accomplished in local government in Chicago, what I accomplished in my real estate company, it's just do not give up. You just have to have this force of nature inside of you. And I think the resilience comes with experience and it also comes with failure. I think one of the advantages of failing is that you realize, well, the world didn't come to an end. And I'm not defined by that failure. I talk about this a lot in my book. I was just miserable practicing law and I wasn't even really good at it in the private sector. I found my skill when I was advocating on behalf of the citizens of Chicago. That I worked hard at, that I cared about in a way that I just didn't in the private practice. And you have to, you have to see what it's like to stumble and fall and then realize, oh, I can get back up and I can stumble again and I can get back up. And hopefully I've learned from those stumbles. And so I stumble in different ways. Uh, so I think all of that helps you just continue to push forward in the face of circumstances that do seem beyond your control. What steps can the corporate sector take to help the country heal after the presidential election? Oh, well, that's a really good question. I'm worried about that, actually. Regardless of the outcome, there's going to be a big chunk of our country that's really, really upset. And I think um, one of the many reasons why I'm supporting Joe Biden is that he, he has the ability to be a bridge. I mean, he's... He's comfortable in his own skin. And he's also, look, he's a man who grew up, his dad lost his job. He knows what it's like to um, to be in that kind of a situation. He's had more personal loss of loved ones than any one person should have to bear. And rather than letting it crumble him, his sense of purpose has helped him with his grief, I think. And I, and I think that empathy and that experience, coupling experience and empathy and goodwill and resilience will make him able to lead our country, but it's gonna take everyone. And I think the business community can play a very important role in this. Healing within your own company, talking to people who work with you, uh, your team. There are microaggressions going on every single day, everywhere. That's just the nature and, and recognizing that and doing your part to heal within the people you influence, I think will help our country heal. Yeah. And so, I want a leader who wants to bring us together. That's kind of my political solution. But but it doesn't change. The culture, as we talked about, doesn't change until we, the people, decide that it will. And I think business leaders have a powerful voice in that. And as I you know, talked about fighting for the LGBTQ rights, I think the business community can do the same thing, fighting for racial justice. If you're young, motivated, and want to get into government from Columbia Business School, What advice would you give? Well, if you're interested in public service, I say do it. Um, Do it wherever you can. I started at the local level, and I have already explained to you why I thought that was beneficial. But 
just get in there and try to figure out how the government works. You have to, you have to educate yourself and it, it isn't readily apparent from the outside always. You learn a lot more when you're on the inside and maybe stick your toe in with a summer internship or a part-time involvement. But I encourage you to just start. In terms of running for office, um, I encourage all of y'all to run for office. I want people to put their hat in the arena and get in there and, um, and, and, and run. I am not going to run for office. <laughs> Maybe 20 or 30 years ago or even 10 years ago, I might have. But in this stage of my life, I don't want to do the 24-7 that you really have to be committed to doing for the people. I have a grandson now. I have all the flexibility in the world. I, as I mentioned, get up every day and do what I want to do. But if you decide to run for office, I would be happy to help you. And I spent a lot of time coaching my young mentees, who many have now grown up. I take great pride in mentoring young people. And so if y'all want to run for office, I'll help you. What is your leadership Achilles heel and how do you work to overcome it or not? It used to be trying to do too much myself. And not because I'm micromanaging, but just it's easier to just do it myself. And I thought it was a way of being responsible. Mm -hmm. And part of leadership is recognizing the importance of delegating and giving your team responsibility. And I think by the time I got to the White House, I prided myself in, for example, there was a meeting with the president. I can count on one hand the number of times I presented to him. I let my team do it. Number one, because I knew they would work harder getting ready for it if they knew that they had to present to him. But also it was a way of showing them that I had confidence in what they were going to do, that I didn't have to do it myself. And so letting go of that temptation to try to do it all myself. One of the reasons I'm smiling so widely is that um, my colleagues and I have done some research highlighting that women don't delegate as much as men. And there's a lot behind it and more anxiety and all that. And so the fact that you just mentioned that really um, is a reminder of how important it is for us to delegate more. Absolutely. Oh. Valerie, thank you so much for taking this time with us. You're welcome. This wonderful discussion as part of the Cleon Forum. It really means a lot to us. And um, I also want to thank everyone who tuned in. I want to thank the Bernstein staff for putting this together. Ben Milakowski, who connected us, the Student Leadership and Ethics Board. And I hope everyone enjoys the rest of their day. And I want to also just repeat a nugget that Valerie mentioned that people are the elixir of life. So keep on meeting good people and keep on having that great elixir. Thank you all. And thank you again, Valerie. Thank you. Thank you, Madufe. I really enjoyed our conversation. Be See? well, everybody. Stay safe. That's our episode. Many thanks to both Valerie Jarrett and Madupe Akinola for their insights and to the Cleon Forum and the Bernstein Center for making this interview possible. Do you have comments or suggestions about the show? Email us at biscast at gsb.columbia.edu or find us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Columbia underscore biz. Subscribe to BizCast wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.